This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2020, and we have an unprecedented program for you today. Did you know that these are unprecedented times, and this will be an unprecedented program? Because next week is WWQ3 week. The Q3 report happens on Thursday. I already did my Q3 preview last week. You can go back and listen to that if you want. That was last week. So that means what what is there left to talk about when it comes to WWE? We talk a lot about WWE every week on this program. So this week, to spare you and to prepare you for what will next week be a WWE-heavy program. This week will be a non-WWE program. Non-WWE, and I don't even have any AEW topics on this run sheet. I'll tell you what sheet I do have, though. I have a new New Japan Pro Wrestling balance sheet. Oh, yes. Assets, liabilities, equity. We will talk today, as well, about a little company that existed back in 2017 known as Total Nonstop Action. And I have been not just knee-deep, but I have been up to my eyeballs in cage match data lately. I have been making pivot tables. I have been making mistakes. Who will ask the cage match data today to tell us some things about the pandemic and how wrestling may or may not be recovering from it. And you know in that cage match data, although it doesn't have every independent wrestling event that has ever happened, it's missing a lot of them, but it does have a lot of independent wrestling information in it. And today, we might even talk about that subject that I know all too well, U.S. independent wrestling. So let's begin the New Japan 2020 balance sheet. As you may know, New Japan has a fiscal year, which is not the calendar year. New Japan has a fiscal year that ends each July. And then basically in September, Bushiroad, New Japan's parent company, publishes their annual financial report in September. We get some information on that. I talked about that last month and wrote an article about that for WrestleNomics.com, which you can find, where it shows not really any specific New Japan information in it, but we do get a revenue number for the Bushiroad Sports Division, the vast majority of which I believe is made up of New Japan Pro Wrestling revenue. And in that report, we learned that the Bushiroad Sports Division generated 5 billion yen in revenue, which converts to $48 million in U.S. dollars. So $48 million, probably the vast majority of that being New Japan, $48 million of revenue. Surely there could be some stardom in there. Uh, I'm not sure offhand if Bushiroad's kickboxing business was uh, functioning in that fiscal year. But $48 million is is in in line with what New Japan had done in the last two years. So let's see, fiscal year 2018, New Japan has published, uh, by the way, for the last few years, has published its annual revenue right on its official website. If you go into the company page on the New Japan official website, uh, in days before today, you would find, we'll get to that in a moment, but you would find New Japan's annual revenue listed right there on the official website. It's not been updated, by the way, on the, on the English website, but on the Japanese website, you can find it. And we know uh, New Japan revenue going back to at least 2012. And so in fiscal year 2019, about $52 million in revenue. Year before that, $57 million in revenue. Okay, 57, 52. This year, the one that just ended in July, $48 million on the entire Bushi Road Sports Division. So probably the New Japan revenue number being substantially less than $48 million, I would think especially when you consider the effect that the pandemic had to have on the business. New Japan had to cancel, uh, by my count, some 63 events between uh, the entirety of March all the way through the middle of July. And that's not even counting you know, things that they wanted to do like they were supposed to do. Remember, they were supposed to do Madison Square Garden this past August. Obviously, that did not happen. But anyway, they did have to cancel 63 events that were supposed to happen in Japan. It did not happen of the pandemic they've had to do in july so we're only covering the period that ended in july so 
by the middle of July, they were doing some limited capacity events. So there were some ticket sales then at that point for about half of July, but otherwise missing out on March, April, May, June, four entire months of ticket sales were missed out on four months out of, of 12. And if you look at uh, if cage matches to be believed stardom, to get an idea of how, how many ticket sales, how many tickets is stardom selling in a given year, yeah, cage matches counting, let's say take last year since that was a full non-pandemic year, uh, stardom doing 90 events. I think that excludes some where they jointly promoted some events. But it's 90 events for stardom, but half the number of events that New Japan ran that year. New Japan ran 183. Well, it looks like stardom doing about 35,000 total attendees, according to the records that cage match has collected. As a proportion of New Japan, that's 6% of what New Japan did in the same year. New Japan doing just over 600,000 attendees. And so I don't know where, where the stardom numbers really come from or have any experience looking through the numbers and thinking about whether or not that represents paid attendance or total attendance. Total attendance, of course, including non-paid attendees. But we get 6% of New Japan's attendance in stardom's attendance so that, that would be a beginning estimate for what I would think about how much, how much revenue does stardom generate in a year or how much of the Bushiroad sports division might be made up of stardom revenue. Maybe something around 6%. Anyway, I'm saying all of this to build up to the point that uh, if you remember last time we were talking about all the, the Bushiroad financial report news, there is a balance sheet for New Japan, not Bushi Road, not Bushi Road Sports Division, but for New Japan Pro Wrestling, just the New Japan Pro Wrestling Company that apparently gets dropped. I don't know where we originally found the link for this. Mookie and I found this, I think back in 2017 or 18, and I've been able to find it each year since. We have balance sheets going all the way back to 2007 that are on the New Japan website, and they are dropped late October every year, and I think they have been dropped on October 23rd today the day that I'm recording this, each year for the last few years. I found the one for last year recently, and I found the one for this year. I made a note on my calendar to check on this day, a certain URL was on my Google calendar, and lo and behold, when I checked that URL today, the balance sheet was there. Why is this important? Well, I finally get to the point, New Japan uh, was profitable for the fiscal year ending July 2020. The balance sheet shows that New Japan made $2 million in net income. Net income is a, a measure of profit uh, after all of the taxes and interest and things like that are taken out. So despite the pandemic, despite having to cancel some 63 shows, New Japan still has its head above water, much less profit than in prior years. Last year, $4.7 million in net income. Again, this year, just $2 million, down from 4.7 million last year. Year before that, even more profitable, $5.5 million in the fiscal year 2018. So again, New Japan may be making around $40 million in revenue. We know the sports division overall making 48. If, if in fact we say that $48 million and say well, 6% of it maybe goes to stardom, 94% of it going to New Japan, we would end up with $45 million. So I'd be pretty impressed if, uh, considering last year, New Japan did $52 million in revenue. And if this year, with four months of pandemic in the way, they still did $45 million, that would be pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive that they, that they were even profitable. Uh, you know, the company line has been that everybody in New Japan during the pandemic was paid as normal. Maybe there's some exceptions uh, with the major executives. But clearly, New Japan would have avoided a lot of expense by just not running those shows, which would have been quite expensive. So a $2 million net income is a 4% profit margin on the revenues of $48 million. We should probably lower that, though. Like I said, that would make the net income margin even higher. Uh, that, of course, is down from the prior year's net income margin of 9%. And the year before that, 12%. And I know I said no WWE talk today, but we can use WWE at least as a, uh, a frame of reference WWE did for net income. Again, New Japan doing two, $2 million in net income. Uh, WWE last year doing $77 million in net income. My estimate at this point for this year, 100 
million dollars in net income. So let's see here. Let's do some more granular analysis on this to see if we can get to a revenue that is something like, you know, 90 to 94% of the Bushy Road sports division revenue, which is 48%. So something, you know, substantially a, a margin under 48%, considering the realities that New Japan faced uh, in the fiscal year of 2020 related to the pandemic. So I, I have a magic spreadsheet here that uh, I've used previously to estimate what the merchandise revenue, what the live event revenue, what the content revenue was for New Japan. Because in fact, they, they told us at one point, uh, 50% of, of New Japan's revenue comes from live event ticket sales. Uh, and maybe things in addition to ticket sales related 50% from live events, uh, about 30% from merchandise and about 20% from content. So that, that sounds to me like media, you know, there's generally in the, in the pro wrestling industry, there is a live events division. There is a consumer products division, also known as merchandise. And there is a media division. That's that's the way WWE does things. Oh, this is a WWE free show. Sorry. Um, so if I take, you know, at one point I sat down and I said, okay, here's 2018's revenue of 70, uh, $47 million of revenue. You take about 50% of that. You know, you get about $24 million in live event revenue. You get about $15 million in merchandise revenue based on 30%. And then in media revenue or content revenue based on about 20%. Well, you get about $8 million of revenue. That was for fiscal year 2018. And I applied that as well to the following year of 2019. So if we take those percentage breakdowns of 50% live events, about 30% merchandise, about 20% media content, if we apply that to this year and you know bake in the assumption that, all right, New Japan missed out on four months due to the pandemic, maybe even five, because, you know, July was quite hindered as well. So let's say they missed out on the the value of four and a half months of events. Let's just, this is a rough estimate. So four and a half months out of a year out of 12 months is about 38% of their live revenue, let's say, goes away. So let's say if they were going to do roughly the same as they did the prior year, I get to about $27 million in live event revenue. And let's see, let's give that a a 38% hit. We're down to $10 million in live event revenue for the fiscal year 2020. There's no venue merchandise for part of the year. And if we take the split of uh, venue merch versus online merch that WWE does, WWE does about 38%. Sorry to be confusing there, but they also do about 38% of their merchandise sales at the venue. The rest of them, what is that? Uh, 38%. 100 minus 38 is what? 40, no. <laughs> 62, 62%, right? Yeah, 60, 38% venue merch, 62% online merch. So let's say uh, New Japan also takes a four and a half month hit out of the 12 month year on 38% of its merchandise business. That leaves us with uh, based on the prior year of fourteen and a half million, that leaves New Japan with twelve point four million dollars in merchandise revenue. Let's imagine that media content revenue is the same as last year, about ten million, and that gives us ten million plus about twelve and a half million plus ten million, uh, and that gives us a total of thirty-three million dollars in revenue. Thirty-three million dollars in revenue. Again, the we know that the Bushy Road Sports Division uh, reported forty-eight million dollars in revenue. That would put New Japan at about sixty-nine percent of the sports division revenue. Uh, and my gut feels like that's low. Uh, ticket sales uh, in the non-pandemic portion of the fiscal year were higher uh, than than the same period of the prior year. So maybe the events revenue estimate is low. So from the months of August to February 2000, uh, August 2018 to February 2019, New Japan's total attendance was 248,000, 248,000. Same period, uh, the following year, New Japan's total attendance was 305,000. Of course, that includes two Wrestle Kingdom events. That's a 23% increase, 23% increase on the eight months that did not 
uh, that were not affected by the by the pandemic. So if I apply a 28% increase before taking away the uh, four and a half months out of 12, then we get to, then we end up with $13 million in live event revenue for a total of now $36 million in revenue. And maybe content is not the same as the prior year. Maybe it's, maybe there's some sort of escalating uh, revenue effect for New Japan there. I think New Japan world subscribers have been pretty much the same for the last year and a half or so. But maybe TV Asahi is giving them more. They did get moved to uh, BS uh, Asahi or an additional airing on BS Asahi. They would have, however, lost any revenue that they were getting from Access TV since they stopped airing uh, on Access. I believe in December 2019. But if somehow there was an escalating uh, media content revenue that would get get uh, based on the escalation of the prior year, or estimated maybe it went from eight million to ten million, that would get it to thirteen million for fiscal year 2020 for a total of about thir- uh, thirty nine million. So anyway, we're inching our way closer to that forty eight million overall for the sports division. Anyhow. We should get an answer. Well, maybe we'll get an answer. I should say maybe we'll get an answer on uh, the 27th. That's Tuesday when Bushi Road, in the same week that W is going to do their Q3 report. Anyway, uh, on Tuesday, New Japan is going to have, or not New Japan, Bushi Road is going to have its annual shareholders meeting. And we should be getting a, a big uh, PowerPoint slide presentation in PDF form on the uh, Bushi Road investor relations website where we might get some some graphs or some other data that will show us what the new japan revenue was for the year of you know the fiscal year 2020 from august 19 to july 20 so i'm guess i guess i'm settling on a an annual revenue for new japan of maybe somewhere around oh 39 million dollars but we'll see again for again for context w's annual revenue this year and last year, this year probably about a billion dollars. New Japan, maybe this year, 38 in a normal year, 50 million, you know, 48, maybe 50 million. That would be a billion. All right, behind the curtain, from the last time you heard my voice to you just seconds ago, I have had the recorder on pause for, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. Who, who, who can tell? What's that Einstein quote? Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute, and it seems like an hour. Sit with 300,000 cells of data for an hour, and it seems like a minute. So basically what, what I've been trying to crunch here, and since we were talking about New Japan and somewhat about stardom, let's talk about more about what's been happening in Japan in the last in, in, in the year 2020. And especially in terms of how many events there have been, how much attendance there has been around, during, and after. Well, around, during, before the shutdown, during the shutdown, and after the shutdown, let's say. And how any of those numbers compare to the prior year. Since Japan has been the the, the country among the major pro wrestling countries where, where pro wrestling is especially popular and there are many events since Japan is the country with the, the lowest prevalence among uh, Japan, the United States, and Mexico, we'll focus on Japan first. Of course, throughout January and February, things were normal. The number of events in, K- in the cage match database for Japan that took place in Japan in, J- in January up 1% and in February up 4%. In March, events fell in half. Compared to 2019, 196 events in 2019 in March in Japan, down to 100 in March 2020. And that goes even lower in April, where there were 203 events the previous April, only 36. April is is, is the, the valley, the lowest valley of coronavirus affecting pro wrestling events in Japan. It jumps back up in May. So in April, it was down 82% in May, it starts to, to creep back up a little bit, only down 71% until June, where it's down 44%. In July, it's down 20%, so back even stronger. August down 
so still below a normal level in August, but then it falls again in September down 27%. We're still under 200 events as far as the cage match database is concerned. Around 150 events uh, in in July, August, and September. We won't talk about the partial month of October. Uh, In April, the attendance in the cage match record is zero. So there were 36 events And this data would suggest that all of them had no attendees, no fans in attendance in the month of April. Now, Cage Match has got a lot of of events that don't have an attendance recorded. But uh, May, the the total attendance gets up to 80 with an average attendance of two, a median attendance of zero. So still a lot of uh, no fan events in May. Same for June. The median attendance is zero for June in Japan. And then, of course, in July, that's where New Japan starts to return to events. In July, with the data available, I've got an average attendance of 249, a median of 123. In the latest completed month, September, uh, in the record, again, not a complete record, but in the record, we've got an average attendance of 365. That is down a third from the prior year, when the average attendance throughout Japan in the record was 541. In October, which is a partially completed month, which is I'm guessing is, is being skewed here by the G1 Climax being moved to October this year, the average attendance at this point, this, is, this data is as of October 14th, so this data is about a week old. But as of October 14th, the average attendance in Japan is 502, which is equal to the October 2009 average attendance of 500. The number of events, though, for October 2019, let's let's take it up to October 14th, 2019. The total number of events at that point in the month was, let's see here, 93, 93 for the first, let's call it the first half of October 2019. At the same point in 2020, they're at 68, 68 versus 93 is a 2020 is down by 27% from the similar year of the prior year, from the similar period of the prior year. That is the exact same uh, percent of difference for September for number of events. Uh, Let's look at September. The average attendance for September 2020 down only a third to the September of 2019. Median down 44%. Uh, I look at median here because I know that there's there's a lot of skewing from, you know, there's a few, mainly New Japan, a few promotions that that draw much larger attendances relative to a lot of the smaller promotions that are making up a, a large portion of the population here. So that's what's happening in Japan. You could say Japan is about two-thirds of the way back to running the full schedule of events that it had previously uh, in the year prior to the pandemic. How about Mexico, though? Uh, we're not going to talk about attendances with Mexico because there's a it's a very incomplete record when it comes to actual attendances, but we do have number of events, and, and I don't have a sense of how complete the the record of of collecting the events is. But this may this is maybe a sample that gives us some idea of how things have changed throughout the pandemic. In January and February, I've got events in 2020 up by. 12 and 19%. So you got more events in 2020 than you had in, in 2019 in those two months before the pandemic starts to affect everything. In March in Mexico, events are down only by one third in March. Then April, May, and June are almost completely wiped out. Number of, of events down by 90% in all three, 92% in June, actually. We got nine events recorded in April, eight in May. Seven in June. In July, they start to to come back up, though. 13 events in July, down from 76 in 2019. Uh, 21 events in August, down from 80. 37 events in September, down from 88. So September, that's, that's a difference of 58%, down by 58% in September in Mexico. So Mexico, at least by this sample, still running less than half of the events that it had last year, which makes sense when you think about the uh, 
coronavirus data that I've seen for Mexico on places like ourworldindata.org, which references data from the European CDC, uh, coronavirus deaths have been comparable to that of the United States and sometimes worse uh, on a per capita basis. But now let's let's cross the border and go to my home country, the United States, for the cage match data in the United States. I can say that I feel pretty confident that every event for every major promotion is recorded here. Every event for every you know medium to high profile indie promotion is here. Uh, some of the lower profile indie promotions, though, are getting uh, overlooked, or at least there's there's not uh, great access to getting the result records for those promotions. But anyway, I, I guess I would call the cage match record mostly complete for the United States, in my estimation. Events in the United States in the record were up 10% in January, down a little bit 5% in February. So for the actual numbers, January 348 events recorded in the U.S. is up from 315. In February, 324 events in the U.S., down a bit from 341. Then, of course, in March, in the middle of March, the pandemic takes effect, uh, at least to WWE and AEW, beginning on March 13th. So it marched throughout the U.S., down 57% the number of events. And we've got a zero for recorded attendance in all of April. 47 events in April in the U.S. And it looks like the vast majority of those are, are WAW uh, impact events, even, even the Ring of Honor TV events that are not actually new content are even in here, of course. So anyway, April, that's down 87% from the year prior. May is down to the same degree, down 86%, 50 events only, or I'm sorry, 52. And then in June, pandemic fatigue starts to kick in. We've got 95 events, so down only 77% from the year prior. 116 events in July, down only 70%. Uh, August, 164 events, down only 58%. September, down 55% with 172 events in September. And let's look at through October 14th here. Or let's do October 13th. This looks like we only have a partial day for the 14th here for 2020. So uh, October 2019 through the 13th of the month, 185 events. 2020 uh, through October 13th, 76. That's down 59%. So that that look that's a that's lower then September, it's even a little bit lower than August. So that would suggest in the United States that uh, the return to events has kind of stabilized in this August, September, and so far through October at just more than half, you know, about 50 to 60%, or really 55 to 59% down from the prior year. So we're stabilizing the United States at, at about a 40% return. We're at about a, at a, at a 40% return. Of course, that's with nothing at, at full capacity or even the sort of partial capacity that we see in Japan. And in Mexico, if if the cage match record is a good sample of Mexico, they're at a similar rate of about a about a 40% return number of events. We've got no recorded attendees in Mexico since March. Meanwhile, in Japan, they're at about a 75% return. So let's take a break from the cage match data for a moment. And let's go to the ongoing lawsuit between Jeff Jarrett and Anthem Sports and Entertainment. So this lawsuit was originally filed way back in August 2018. Jeff Jarrett, who currently works for WWE as, a, as an agent, producer, Jarrett is suing Anthem Sports and Entertainment over the failed merger between Impact Wrestling and Global Force Wrestling. Jarrett alleges that Anthem continued to use the GFW branding and intellectual property after Jarrett's departure from the company. Earlier this summer, the lawsuit was ruled a mistrial. Jarrett has requested a new trial, which has been denied but in the documents related to the lawsuit, which are have been made part of the public record, what we'll deal with tonight is that there's a, there's a transcript 
from the hearing from the lawyer for the Anthem side. And there is an exhibit that contains basically PDF pages of, oh yes, an Excel spreadsheet, which guess what? I have reconstructed because of course I did. And it gives us some uh, some information about uh, TNA's financial projections at the time. It gives us some impressions about what their financial situation was at the time in 2017. But anyway, we'll go to this brief excerpt from the hearing. It looks like this was on July 29th, where one of the lawyers for the Anthem side, one Ms. Paige Mills, who presented the case to the jury as follows. Uh, in this, this brief excerpt of a, of a long transcript, she says, Mr. Jarrett's claim is that Anthem lured him into the company and promised him a merger that it never intended to do. And all for the purpose of taking his intellectual property and then kicking him to the curb once it had that. And that is not at all what happened. And you heard that from the stand as you sat here and watched this case. Here's what really happened. Mr. Jarrett had been kicked out of the previous company, TNA Entertainment, and he had a beef with the previous owner. And coming back into Anthem after my client acquired it was a big deal for him. He was going to be back on top, and he was going to be in charge, and he was determined to be in charge, and he was going to show those folks before that he was back, and he was a force to be reckoned with. But his own conduct destroyed any possibility of the merger. Now, Mr. Miller... This refers to Samuel Miller, Jeff Jarrett's lawyer. Now, Mr. Miller likes to minimize his conduct. But you heard, ladies and gentlemen, witness after witness tell you that Mr. Jarrett was frequently drunk at work. Mr. Jarrett was frequently abusive to employees. That he ruled with an iron fist. That it was his way or the highway. He exposed himself to employees on more than one occasion. He beat an employee with his belt. He shoved an important business executive at an important event because he lost his temper while drinking. He appeared on behalf, he appeared at a wrestling event to wrestle, completely drunk, and didn't show back up. This is not conduct that can be minimized. This is such serious conduct, and I think we all know if we were in the workplace and somebody, or the big boss, the chief creative officer was behaving this way, it's a serious, serious problem. So, and that's why the merger didn't go through. I think it's pretty obvious that if you've got a party you're getting ready to merge with, and this kind of conduct is going on, it would make anyone think twice about merging or whether or not that's a possibility. So again, just an excerpt of some of the uh, the courtroom drama in front of the jury. But so as part of the uh, exhibits that were unsealed here, as I mentioned, there's basically an Excel spreadsheet that was apparently an attachment to an e- In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're you you know what I mean? Like you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, oh, hey, look at some random cards, or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards. It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, 
and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Email showing a model, a five-year model of what TNA in 2017 was projecting as, as its financial situation. Uh, various forecasts, some of them higher, some of them lower. Uh, in, in many cases, in my assessment, uh, Many of these forecasts are extremely optimistic uh, throughout, depending on what metric and what line you're looking at. So what, what did we learn here from this model? So I know this is a podcast and there are no visual aids here, but it appears if we look at the, there's, there's these columns that have year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. And if we take year one to, to give us an impression of about what TNA expected to make that year, uh, the total revenue that it expected to make in year one, which is presumably 2017, is $7.7 million. So I want to preface this and say that this is not, uh, these are not financial records about the past, about things that had already happened, but appears to be a financial record about what, what they expected would happen and various models about what could happen. But in year one here, they've got TNA projecting. $7.7 million of total revenue. And to put that in some perspective, as we did earlier with New Japan, New Japan in its fiscal year 2017 made $37 million. So again, TNA, let's just round up $8 million for TNA, $8 million, New Japan, 37. WWE in 2017, $801 million. So WWE in that year, Roughly 100 times more revenue, over 100 times more uh, revenue than TNA. Uh, New Japan, almost five times the revenue of TNA. And what else did we learn? Uh, they expected total operating expenses of $13.5 million, which would turn out to be a net income of negative $6.2 million. So not expecting a profitable year, they were projecting profitable years out into the future. They list international TV licensing fees of $4.5 million, which is consistent with what we've heard over the years about how the the biggest piece of uh, TNA's or this now known as Impact Wrestling's revenue is from its international TV deals in India and in the UK. But again, for perspective, $4.5 million on a WWE scale today is about one episode of Raw. Um, at this point, it's 2017, and... Impact is on Pop TV, or just Pop, I think, at that time. I believe it was reported that the revenue that TNA was getting for being on Pop was a share of the ad revenue for the program. They've got modeled in here for year one for Pop TV revenue, $832,000. So just under a million dollars for Impact to be on Pop for a year. YouTube revenue for the year, $330,000. Revenue related to Pluto TV, $118,000. And pay-per-view revenue, uh, a little more than the pop revenue that, that was modeled in it. Pay-per-view revenue, revenue of $849,000. That was assuming 40,000 buys for the year at a 40% split to TNA's benefit. 60% for the provider. That's based on 10 one-night-only pay-per-views, which are pay-per-views that are taped in advance and two live pay-per-views. And to get to 40,000 buys, that, that assumes uh, on 10 one-night-onlys, you get to do 3,500 on average per one-night-only program, and 20,000 pay-per-view buys per live pay-per-view. 
for two live pay-per-views in the year. Online merchandise, $481,000. So just under half a million. And ticket sales and merch revenue, uh, venue merch revenue combined, $280,000. So just a, a ton of detail in there. It's hard to tell what reflects the, the current, the then current situation. But that that's how I spent my Tuesday night, is reconstructing that spreadsheet. We'll be back to talk about independent wrestling, the role it plays in the overall development of professional wrestling, the effect that media has on independent wrestling, in particular, new media, and the, the effect that the pandemic may be having on the development of, of wrestlers and of independent wrestling. Uh, all those things, not in that order. Coming up next. I am the chosen one. He broke 6,000 guitars, never drew a dime, but he thought he was the man. And he really thought in his little Tennessee brain that he was bigger and better and would draw more money than Hulk Hogan. there's our friends mike graham and and his friend jeff jarrett or is it the road dog so when we think about what the pandemic has done to pro wrestling u.s pro wrestling we're talking earlier about well it looks like u.s pro wrestling in terms of the number of events that we're running right now it's about uh, a third of the way back to where it was a year prior something like that 40 30 percent but that includes independent wrestling. Because in fact, when you uh, rule out independent wrestling and only include WWE, AEW, Ring of Honor, Impact, and whatever New Japan is doing in the US, and let's even include uh, MLW in there, that upper level TV level of wrestling in the US, in terms of number of events, is basically already back to normal right now. Um, August 2019, there were 28 events from those TV-level promotions. 28 events in August 2019. 2020, from those same set of promotions, there were 28 events. Same number. September uh, last year, 35 events from those promotions. 34 this year. Uh, The number of events were down almost by a quarter in June and July. Uh, But in May, and this probably includes all the the TV programs, actually, from... uh, places like Ring of Honor and NXT UK that did their TV shows with archival footage. We got May 2020 up 4%. April 2020 up 4%. And and I've got house shows included in here, right? Let me make sure. And there are house shows in this data set. Uh, so take September, for example, just, just WB 27 uh, in, in, in 2019, 16, 2020 for September. I admit I haven't looked over all 300,000 cells here, but it's possible I'm missing something, but I, but I think you get the point. We've got independent wrestling in September and August down 60%, and uh, mainstream wrestling down, you know, TV wrestling down basically 0%, at least as far as this data is telling us. You know, I think about how, uh, you know, independent wrestling, you know, wrestlers on the independent level are developed by having matches and Ideally, having matches with people who are more experienced than themselves, and I feel you know really bad for you know wrestlers, independent wrestlers in general. Uh, you know, a, a lot of those who we trained here in Buffalo, who uh, because of COVID, you know, a lot of them were wrestling multiple times a weekend, and now they're wrestling hardly ever. You know, in large part, it's put the pause on the development of independent wrestlers, wrestlers who are already on TV or who are already signed to major promotions now granted there's no nxt house shows for the sort of newer level uh, nxt wrestlers to develop on but uh, as far as the independence i guess it's on my um intuitive level my intuitive assessment and it may be my bias because it's my background but i think independent wrestling is crucial to the development 
of pro wrestling talent in general. And it's becoming more clear as time goes on, as we look back on you know, much of the 21st century to this point, you know, the sort of perception apparently within WWE that independent wrestling was not that important to the, their development or their developmental system. There was a prevailing philosophy that was repeated by Paul Levesque as, as late as in 2014, that they kind of preferred wrestlers who didn't have any experience so that they didn't have to unteach them any bad habits or they didn't have to try to convert them to their playbook. And in the uh, study of the of WWE's developmental system that I continue to work on, uh, it, it's apparent that there's data to show how many wrestlers with independent wrestling experience have gone on to wrestle in WWE. And like Paul Vec himself really changed his tune after 2015 uh, on how important independent wrestlers with experience were. And sort of looking back over the last few years of wrestling, I think the all-in event in Chicago in 2018 and the promotion AEW that followed it are sort of the flashpoint of independent wrestling mattering to the industry and the ways in which XW in general or you know, sort of the people who have the most power in wrestling didn't honor that value appropriately. But anyway, I, I say all that to just sort of to emphasize how how big of a deal it is and I, and I did hear Dave Meltzer and, and Garrett Gonzalez talk about it uh, the other weekend, but how big a deal it is right now that independent wrestling is is basically out of commission, with some exceptions, with various degrees of, of safety precautions. But basically that developmental is on hold. And, and another point that's been raised recently, there was a great discussion a, a few months back on the Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast uh, around the time that Gabe Sapolsky uh, was you know shutting down Evolve and moving on to WWE, and as people know, Evolve has been acquired, or some form of Evolve has been acquired. And the important thing there is that Evolve had been one of the big players where independent wrestling talent was developed, where you might have heard of a lot of the bigger names today in wrestling for the first time might have been in Evolve, and that is one place where they gained a great deal of experience. And one of the points that Rich and Joe were raising in that conversation was how important Evolve was, not just to making wrestlers into good in-ring performers, but in giving them an experience in working feuds and programs and storylines. And they were pointing out that there aren't a lot of indies now that are doing strong storylines, where wrestlers can get that experience of not just having matches and improving themselves in the ring, but but get the experience of how to develop a storyline and a feud and to do promos and to do all the things that make people care about matches. And, and I kind of think, by the way, that we're kind of at a, like a saturation point. You might think of like the uh, Meltzer breaking his star system as sort of a, um, a key moment when wrestling match quality became in a way saturated, which is not a bad thing, right? You know, people are having... Such great matches. That's that's a really good thing. And and if I could sound old for a moment, I kind of remember, you know, my my history as a as a tape trader and discovering wrestling online. A lot of the 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 attraction of it was that I was going to get to see kinds of wrestling and perce a perceived level of wrestling that I couldn't get easily. I couldn't get anywhere else. And there was sort of a feeling that there was a shortage of this sort of great quality wrestling. And people can correct me if, I'm, if they feel differently. But both because of the, the access that we have to all of the great wrestling and because I think just the general improvement of, of wrestling match quality in general, at least perceived, those two things I think have a lot to do with each other, by the way. But the general improved quality of matches, of performances in the ring, and the access being improved to those matches and to wrestling matches in general. You know, great matches are, are are in a sense less special. And also, in a sense, it's you know, the standard has been raised for how good is good or how good you have to be to really be a, you know, an excellent wrestler. 
or how good you have to be to, you know, for your ability to really be outstanding. But anyway, so it's not really that special or outstanding, outstanding anymore to be a pretty good wrestler. And it, it, it feels to me like there's no shortage of great in-ring matches. In, in an economic sense, those are in, in great supply. There's a high supply of great matches, especially compared to decades past. What there's not a high supply of, and I might argue that what there's a lower supply of compared to decades past, are great stories. Or let's make it a little bit less subjective, stories that make people care. And, and I guess the idea is on the indies, yes, there's plenty of match experience being had, but there's not as much um, good storytelling experience being had. And if Evolve is out of the picture, that makes uh, the storytelling experience even less available. And I guess I would add that uh, there are hundreds of small independent promotions that uh, nobody pay, pays attention to beyond you know, the people in the local area where those rosters are more consistent. Um, there's you know, probably hundreds of promotions that aren't doing the, uh, the hot shot indie match. And those promotions often, not all, <laughs> but often do tend to be more storyline heavy than maybe some of the other indies that get more of a global social media following because they include those wrestlers who are maybe on the cusp of being signed. So there is some stuff happening, I think, well below the radar. And you know, a lot of that stuff that is happening below the radar is not necessarily you know, well-booked. A lot of the people at that level have sort of entry-level basic experience, both in terms of the people who are making the booking decisions and in terms of the people who are actually you know, having the matches. But at least some of them are decent. And the, the value of that experience may not be as high, that experience may not be as refined as if it were on a high-level indie among high-level independent wrestlers. So I guess I would just like to say that some of that sort of storyline experience development in, in non-pandemic times uh, is happening in, in plenty of places, albeit the quality of the experience may not be as high as it could be. But I, I guess that gets to, to the larger question of why aren't there more of this sort of storyline-heavy stuff in the more uh, noticeable, more high-profile independent companies. So I think especially in the U.S., it has to do with availability and the sprawling geography of the U.S. relative to maybe other scenes like the U.K. where the population is a bit more concentrated. And it is sort of an economic fact that the most in-demand talent is the hardest to get availability on, to do consistent storylines over a long period of time, to get a given wrestler uh, a, a number of dates in the same promotion for a given wrestler who is in high demand can be difficult and expensive. So I think that's a lot of what's happening. But I think, especially in the, in, in the case of the independent promotions, the kind of media that's proportionally important to independent companies plays a big role too. So a while back I did a video at our wrestling school, Grapplers Anonymous in Buffalo, uh, about the economic ladder of pro wrestling. And basically, the, the to summarize it briefly, just sort of laying out that there are different kinds of promotions. You can think about there's, there's sort of different levels of promotions. And on the different levels, different kinds of media are important. So you start out at the, the local indie level when you, when you come out as a wrestler and on, on the local indie level, it's a lot of just word and mouth that gets people in the building. It's a lot of friends and family who go to the shows of the friends and family of the wrestlers. A lot of times wrestlers are made to, to sell tickets to, to the shows. And for those events, Facebook is the most useful piece of social media that there is for, for those events. You're drawing from the local area, you're drawing from within people's literal social networks. The wrestler sells tickets to their friends and family, and the friends and family may bring along their friends and family. And Facebook is the, is the tool to communicate that. Because Facebook, you think about, and I know not in all cases, but most of, the, most of your Facebook friends are people that you know 
in person. Mostly, like generally. So those are the local indies. And then a level above that, there are super indies. And again, not these are not all perfect distinctions, but I think these are useful categories. So above, a level above that, there are super indies. And the super indies are where things like Twitter and Instagram, maybe YouTube become more important. And super indies probably too are relying on friends and family, and it's useful to use Facebook there. But they're also trying to appeal to a global audience on Twitter, maybe on Instagram, maybe through YouTube. They may be monetizing through some kind of streaming service, some kind of on-demand video service, or maybe even pay-per-view, maybe something like Fight TV. Maybe their events are being streamed live on a service like IWTV. And those video products are products that can be consumed by anybody in the world, not just someone who lives locally or within driving distance of the event. So, And then a level above the super indies are just the major companies who use all of the media that has been mentioned so far and are on linear pay TV, which in, in this world is where the big, big money is. But so in those three levels, you can see how social media is you know, Facebook and especially Twitter, Instagram, YouTube are, are really important to the super indies. So now here, of course, is where Marshall McLuhan gets involved, obviously. So you may be familiar with the Marshall McLuhan catchphrase, that the medium is the message. When what does that mean? Like, I, I think that's really instructive for pro wrestling and for maybe a lot of business. The medium is the message kind of on its face doesn't make sense. So what he's trying to say there is um, it's not the content that's important but the medium that the content is transmitted on is important. Or, or more specifically, we're talking too much about the content and not talking enough about the, the media that are, that are used to distribute the content. To apply this to certain discussions about independent wrestling, we're, we're talking a lot about the content of independent wrestling and why we may like it or not like it and how it has changed and evolved, no pun intended, <laughs> And I think in this case, we haven't talked enough, though, about how media has affected independent wrestling, and especially this, this super indie level of wrestling that is so uh, empowered by the rise of social media in the last 10 years or so. And I, and I think there's been some decent conversation around how social media has shaped and benefited and in some ways complicated independent wrestling. Uh, uh, sort of from a communications and marketing level. And I think there's been less, less conversation about how social media has actually shaped the content and shaped what gets traction in independent wrestling on, on the super indie level. So let's think separately for a moment about what kind of content uh, gets over on, on social media, wrestling besides, or rather what kind of content gets shared on social media. You know, forget wrestling for a moment and think about the kind of non-wrestling content that you've shared uh, on social media. And I, th I think generally some of the big categories of what people share on social media are things that are funny and people share or at least engage with, you know, sort of outrageous content that, that makes people indignant or makes people angry. So surely there are other categories, but I think we can recognize that those are two funny things and outrageous or enraging things are two categories, maybe the two biggest. And two of the dominant trends, I think, in indie wrestling, super indie level wrestling, which relies on social media as its highest media platform, in terms of content have been sort of these funny, some people call them meme wrestlers. And separately, and this has, I guess, less to do with the content and maybe more with the inner workings, but a sort of call-out culture that has affected a lot more than wrestling. And there are clearly good things and bad things to that. And I'm not going to try to sort out today whether calling people out on social media is, is, a, is a net good or net bad for the world or for, or for wrestling. You know, that's manifested in, in, in wrestling in a number of ways. 
you know, everything from petty drama to, you know, revelations of sexual assault. So that's sort of more about the inner workings and the culture of wrestling being affected. And we see how it affects the content in terms of kind of elevating the visibility of more comedic characters and more gifable characters or people who are capable of doing gifable moves or even facial expressions. But those sort of effects on content don't really align to how pro wrestling has traditionally been promoted in the past. You know, people are, on, on social media, people are far less apt to, to share dramatic emotion-investing content like promos that are you know, supposed to compel you to watch an upcoming match. You know, virality on social media needs the excitement to be directed at the content itself and not ultimately in service of some other piece of content. Now, a great dramatic match can create buzz online and can get people talking and excited and recommending the match to each other sort of through a word of mouth. But a long-form piece of video, which is a match, can hardly go viral. And in fact, that, that match content, you know, think about matches are, are, are longer than five seconds or 15 seconds or a minute or two minutes. You know, matches can be 10, 20 minutes or longer. And that content is probably behind a paywall anyway. So that content can hardly go viral if it's behind a paywall. And it probably belongs behind a paywall. It's probably where it's best monetized. So it's kind of a paradox that indie wrestling has never had more attention paid to it so broadly. Through the internet and social media and smartphones, people can follow independent wrestling, independent promotions, and independent wrestlers very easily compared to the past. And independent wrestling... Uh, and wrestlers have never been more globally interconnected. It's very easy for independent wrestlers to get in contact with one another and with promoters and with fans through things like Twitter and Facebook Messenger and direct messages through Twitter, Instagram, and so forth. It's very easy to find out where all the promotions are you know, within a few hours driving distance, for example, relative to the past, where that was a lot harder to figure out. You know, it was a lot harder to get your matches out there. People used to actually mail... VHS tapes to promoters. I am old enough to have done that. But now I just send them a link and it's all become a lot easier and a lot quicker thanks to social media. But the parameters of social media don't suit some of wrestling's traditional aspects. You know, compelling promos that invest emotions in matches and the delivery of those dramatic matches. Instead, they encourage other kinds of content. Again, uh, meme wrestlers, funny videos, spectacular gifts, which may have different economic effects. And let's be fair, pre-social media indie wrestling was already kind of primed for that quick consumption type content. Indie wrestling was already a get over quick kind of society. Uh, we were already incentivized to try to do things that would get us over right away in the short term even if it was at the expense of long-term investment. Because when you're an indie wrestler who's getting booked on a promotion for the first time, there's not really a reason for you to be confident that you're going to get a second chance you know, in this given promotion. You know, there's a great deal of anxiety, sort of just personally, emotionally, as a performer who wants to be accepted and please people, especially if you're a face. And just sort of practically, economically, you may want to get booked again, so you're incentivized to maybe not so much be a serious wrestling character who may do a lot to uphold the suspension of disbelief and may take longer to get over, but you're incentivized to be maybe a more outlandish and ridiculous babyface, for example, who can get over instantly with the audience and who has a better chance of getting that second booking. The example of sort of my, my personal experience with this that I always remember is um, pretty early on in my time in wrestling. Uh, I went to a show with someone who ended up being a promoter someday, <laughs> today. Uh, you know, he and I went to this show that we weren't booked on and we just, you know, we weren't booked on the show and we just watched the show. And it was a decent sized indie show in front of a few hundred fans. 
And it was, I think it was late 2004. So there's no such thing as Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube yet. Certainly not Instagram. And, and even then, you know, I remember watching the show and, you know, if you've been to an indie show, maybe it's still kind of like this. It was really hard for the faces to get over, especially if they didn't have sort of a loud and outlandish personality. And I remember turning to this person I was with and and saying, you know, if Bret Hart had to work the indies, you know, in that environment, if you dropped him into that situation, especially maybe if he didn't have the greatest gear, if he was working that show for the first time and he was a face, then maybe especially if he was in a four-way match or six-way scramble and he wasn't booked to, to get over or given a promo, kind of a typical first shot. You know, I don't know if you've gotten over or you're, or if you would have gotten booked again. You know, and we were already feeling that way pre-social media. And obviously the, the big question is whether the kinds of personalities that, that are less likely to get over instantly and that may require a, a longer and slower investment is that generally a better strategy for generating revenue and emotion as opposed to focusing more on the characters who often through comedy and irony tend to generate the metrics on social media in terms of engagement, sharing, and impressions. But it's clearly easier to stand out as the latter versus the former. Clearly, there's value that these sort of serious long-term investment style characters offer, as well as value that more comedic and viral meme style characters offer. And I have my biases and preferences that may influence the way I feel about it, but I do think there's more benefit and ultimately more revenue to unlock in taking the gamble and investing in those characters who can be used to tell dramatic and engaging stories. But it is definitely a greater challenge to try to identify who those personalities are. So I started recording this, I think about 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. It is now 2.15 a.m. Eastern. This is a refined podcast for refined people and things of that nature. So thanks again for listening. Russellomics is brought to you by member support and listeners like you. If you appreciate what we do on this podcast and on Russellomics.com, consider going to patreon.com slash Russellomics. Your financial support will be appreciated and invested in better content and better media. I think we're getting the audio quality improved here. I think I've got it down. Largely thanks to the support of listeners like you. Next week, Thursday, is WBQ3 Day. It's that quarterly holiday. You can read my preview at WrestleNomics.com. I will probably be tweeting about it on Thursday afternoon. Expect documents to drop around 4 p.m. Eastern. Conference call at 5 p.m. Eastern. Follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. Follow the live tweeting at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.